It's about history. It's about preservation. It's about sense of place here on Eastern Long Island. With Esperanza Leon, I'm Erwin Levy, and this is Our Hamptons. Esperanza. Hello, Erwin. I'm glad to be back with you. I second that. Glad Even to if- be back. Glad to be back with you as well, even as? Even if our subject matter of the day is uh, a tad challenging at times. Doing our Hamptons can really be a series of peaks and valleys. Some of these these stories are fun and a little lighter. And and then you get one like this. And... um, Esperanza and I were lamenting this in the couple of minutes we spend before we press record. And essentially, we're going to talk about, and this is a story that goes back a ways, uh, not that far back, but um, goes back really to the, started in the late 1990s, but it really stems from a Vanity Fair article that I remember distinctly reading in 2011 when it came out. Mm-hmm. And you do too, Esperanza. I mean, I, right? I didn't read it then. I actually became more aware of this, uh, you know, sort of more uh, having a clear picture of it in the last year. Okay. Yeah. Um, the long and the short of it is it's really the story of two families. And um, really, it's, it's almost like has become a saga. It's the story of the Whites, which is we're in Sagaponic now. Uh, an old farm. When I say an old farming family, Esperanza, this family has been in Sagaponic farming this land since 1695. So we're talking 300. Wow. Do I have a serious voice on or what? I mean, yeah. this is some uh, like it just it, it, man, it doesn't I, invite levity. This subject, it, it really doesn't. Inv- it, you're right. It doesn't invite levity. And I'm trying to I mean, I'm not going to say I'm trying to lighten the mood. It's not that I'm trying to do that, but it's just this topic is really it, it is heavy. And I I don't want people to say, oh, my God, I don't know if I could deal with this now. But anyway, it is the, seri- the saga of the White family who owned a farm in Sagaponic uh, for many years. And um, and when we say and, many years, yeah, we're talking, we, we're, like, we're talking over, over 300 years. Right, like and, 13 yeah. generations or so? Uh, if, at yeah, least. Well, something like that. And uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest family in Sagaponic. And it's also the story of the Petrillos, who were one of the tenants starting from 1995, Mr. and Mrs. Petrillo, um, uh, based, they they live in Texas or lived in Texas. I don't know where they are now, but they rented. Uh, and Esperanza can speak to this directly. She's actually seen them. Uh, there were little shingled cottages tucked against the dune, right on the ocean, uh, near the White Farm, uh, yeah. sort of that area on you know, where Sagman curves into the beach, and um, mm-hmm. six hundred fifty square feet. Uh, tell us your. Uh, recollections. I mean, you've seen this property. You're, you're completely aware of it. What were these like? This was housing for the farm workers, right, Esperanza? Yes, that's that is my understanding. They, you know, they're called their cottages. That, as we've discussed on on our Hamptons um, out here, we call them camps, 
and they really are and they retain that that character of just being a very simple um structure that uh that is utilized to you know enjoy really the outdoors more than anything else because they're very they're very small um the one that the uh patrillos i understand the one that they rented since beginning in 1995 was a 650 square foot one that it was called the model because um the whites had uh, brought it over from uh, 27 from Montauk Highway, where it had served as a model home in like the 60s, something like that. So um, again, I you know, and this I love those kinds of stories of repurposing structures. So right. that in and of itself is is uh, is a really nice part of the history. But um, but yeah, they're all and they're all that they're on that size really they're very small structures and and just charming really charming and when you say tucked up against the dune they really are tucked up right against the dune yeah do these um i mean i don't know I, I, do any of these still exist to the best of your knowledge or as far as you know they're all gone at this point no no they're there as far they're as i know if i if if where i was is the correct place which i think it was um there are i think like five or six of them yeah and and what happened was um and this is i think how um this couple, the Petrillos, found this. Uh, he was was it was a uh, best friend, a uh, man named Mike Burrows. And again, this or this we're, we're getting a lot. We're calling most of this information from the Vanity Fair article of incredibly eleven years ago, two thousand eleven. Uh, and they, these were both lawyers at a prominent Manhattan law firm. And Mr. Burrows uh, rented one of these cottages since the seventies. So he was there for twenty plus years longer then um before mr petrillo got there and again uh, to uh, to get into this whole sense of time and place and everything now remember we're talking when he was there in the 70s and this is a recurring theme on our hamptons we talk about yes southampton east hampton villages the bookends uh even in this article, it referred to Southampton was the old money, East Hampton was the new money. Oh, that's not. funny. I've always heard the opposite. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're not that's that's in a Vanity Fair quote, not in our Hamptons quote. But um, and really, who cares? And really, and uh, yes, I I would agree. But uh, again, it really it, it speaks to the fact that the places in between, you know, Sagaponic, mm-hmm. Wainscot, uh, Bridgehampton, it was they were they just didn't have the the cachet that East Hampton and Southampton did. They were really was farm fields, farmland. You know, this article even talks about how in the mid fifties, Peter Matheson found Sagaponic, later James Jones, Truman Capote, Kurt Vonnegut, Irwin Shaw, Willie Morris. We spoke about these in a prior episode about uh, about Bobby Vans, but uh, how they sort of found the literary crowd sort of found this. But um, aside from that, it was really pretty much very, you know, this was before Sagaponic became the most expensive zip code in the country. Right. Uh, or, so it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, that's mind boggling. But one yeah. thing that I that I think bears repeating, which is mentioned in the article, because when it talks about, you know, hardly anyone living there wasn't a farmer, we have to remember, this is the famous Bridgehampton loam. Yes. It is, in the article stated, some of the most fertile soil in the world. Yes, World. Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. Exactly. Correct. And and the whites own 57 acres 
on the ocean. Um, and again, owned it and farmed it since 1695. We had a prior episode about Ira Reynolds Fairfields, uh, the 63 acres on Daniels Lane, you know, literally walking distance from this property. Mm -hmm. So um, again, this, these things are not, um, it's again, it speaks to the disappearing farmland and everything else. But moving on with the story, I mean, you know, John White rented these cottages, uh, you know, you know, for two summer people, summer rentals uh, to generate money. Remember, these they were farmers. They might have been land rich, if you will, especially in present day. But they were really and the article even refers to it. If looking at them, you would never know they were sitting on 57 acres. They didn't act. They were volunteer firefighters. They were they weren't dressed to the nines. They were farmers. These yeah, were farm families, regular members of the community. And, you know, we have to remember that he probably, you know, if they were used as tenant housing up until or through the 60s, that was sort of the beginning of the end of the heyday of the potato. And yes. so that would explain why they began, and, you know, sort of the rise of the resort community, even for more than it used to be, you know, the 70s was then. Um, so that would explain the, the, the renting out to a summer, summer tenant. And what happened was correct. And the whites, John white, the patriarch of the family, uh, you know, he, he made no secret. And this is, this was an issue we've heard so many times over the years about the fear of people and the estate taxes, the mm -hmm. land prices were climbing. And again, we're not, we're not tax accountants here. We don't really, we're not going to get into the weeds on this issue, but the long story short, land prices were climbing and um, they, these people had real fears that their children, now he had four grown children, they would have to sell the farm just to pay the estate taxes upon his death. So these kind of things were always in mind. And uh -huh. a lot of this also Esperanza coincided with a time when this was going on, when, um, the Petrillos got there in um, in the 90s. The pricing, while it certainly wasn't inexpensive at the time, it was really, it was sort of stable. It wasn't the insane escalation that was to come post 2000. So right. uh, I remember this from my own, having bought my own home here in 1989. I, for 10 years, I wouldn't have, if I would have sold it, I wouldn't have gotten a dime more than I paid. Mm. It was really post 2000 that things started to change. But moving this story along, um, and again, talking about Sagaponic, um, we spoke about the, the writers and everything. After the turn of the century, Wall Street started finding it and uh, became the bankers. We mentioned how that term on Goldman Pond came to be right, right. Typ typical, the artists gentrify a place yeah. and then get kicked booted out of it, basically by yeah. the by the wealthy, the uber wealthy. Yes, uh, that that's 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 unfortunately <laughs> that even happens in the country, right? It's not I, just a, a uh, uh, an urban. Uh, Apparently, it, it, right, I mean, you go into Manhattan, you know, the Soho and Tribeca. <laughs> exactly. And all that. It's uh, it's not new. But anyway, you know. This was, and it, it tells the story how the Petrillos joined what they called a casual fraternity of these white farm cottage dwellers. Mm -hmm. Now, these were successful people, all of them, but everything there was very low key. They were living in 650 square feet. Uh, so it was small. And when word around 1995 got, got around that uh, the, the Petrillos bought that southwest corner, 
everyone in that little, very tight knit, sort of akin to what we spoke of in the episode about Three Mile Harbor, uh, different era, but they were all really happy about it. This was a little tight knit kind of thing. But anyway. Yeah, so they worked out a deal, right? The Petrillos with uh, the whites right. to and buy it, a corner of this these, this acreage. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and we have to remember that it didn't just imply, oh, he could just buy a corner of this acreage. They had to first subdivide that. that so it, there was a whole procedure involved it, here. Exactly right, Esperanza. And again, and the article even says now, John White, and this is the words of the writer of Vanity Fair, was no hayseed. Like this was not a, this was, this was not a, he was no hayseed. I'll leave it there. I think that says it all. And for <laughs> years he weighed plans to subdivide the field. And basically him and Mr. Petrillo, and Mr. Petrillo was a lawyer, Harvard, Yale. I mean, very educated guy, but, but also a Jersey guy came out of New Jersey you know, from a middle-class family and really pulled himself up by the bootstraps. It was really an American success story, uh, you know, just to give him, you know, to put it out there for what he's accomplished in his own life. And mm -hmm. obviously became very successful ultimately. But so Petrillo would commit to buying 11 acres for $2 million. And at the time, a not unreasonable price. The whole field was appraised for $6 million. So he was buying whatever, a fifth of it, you know, for $2 million, you know, for $2 million, I mean, it's almost above market value. Right. And, and think about, you know, they, like you were saying, they had established a rapport with the whites. So yes. it felt like, oh, this was a deal am amongst friends in a exactly, way. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And Petrillo would have to front the cost for the subdivision, which was not inexpensive. I mean, that would have been another cost to the whites. So, um, as of at this point in time, everything seemed to be going along fine. And then the sensitive point was that size of the house that the Petrillos were talking about building. By the way, I have to take a pause and say it's amazing how there has there really is not much levity in this episode. But <laughs> we were just, you know, we, you know we, 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 we do try to make this entertaining. But this is really, it's, Esperanza, it's hard to it's hard to make light of this at all. I mean, it's just, especially, I think anyone listening can sort of sense the direction this is going to start to go. Mm -hmm. um, the whites were very sensitive to the size of the house the Petrillos were going to build. And again, remember, this was already the late 90s, the plans for, uh, I don't know if this was at the time or around the time, um, but you know, we had Fairfields, Ira Rennert's house, and there were larger scale houses being built. And basically, that was Mr. White's big concern. Right, right. And to not have uh, those, as, as he called them, monstrosities. Exactly. And, you know, now, as this went along, the Whites would say that Mr. Petrillo gave them repeated assurances his house would be modest in size. He just couldn't put it in writing. Hmm. Because according to what this article is telling us, it would limit the size of the mortgage that the bank would grant. Now, Mr. Yeah, Petrillo and unfortunately, I would just add that it's really unfortunate that at the time, you know, there wasn't sort of a, as there are usually in in these subdivisions, there are covenants and restrictions, as we know. 
and that they couldn't have included something like that, which of course probably the Petrillos would not have um, been right. amenable to including any kind of restriction on the size of the house, although who knows? Exactly. And, you know, for what it's worth, Mr. Petrillo denied ever saying that. And now the contract said that if the whites chose, and this was the key, this is probably the key to the, this entire story. The contract said that if the whites chose to sell any more acreage, uh, Mr. Petrillo would have the right to match the highest offers they got. Now, John White could pass the property to any of his descendants, but any other plan would trigger that right of first refusal. And after all, to a point you just made, Petrillo was like family now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if the whites needed to sell, he should be able to buy it to keep it in the family. Key point number two, Esperanza, John White had no lawyer advise him on this oh, 1995 wow. memo of sale. He didn't like lawyers as a rule, hated their bills. I'm not going to make any anti-lawyer jokes right now. Um, <laughs> but that, kind of, that just sounds like t- a typical yeah, t- farmer, doesn't t- it? I t- mean, t- I'm sorry, yeah. just like salt of the earth person it, who exactly. just like does things on a handshake, which is so honorable. Uh, but unfortunately, that honor has gone. Yeah, I mean, it was... And even the article, the Vanity Fair article says later that would seem to be a grave mistake. Um, and again, it became even clearer when you realize Mr. Petrillo lived in an 18,000 square foot Spanish mission style house in a beautiful enclave in Houston on five acres. Um, that. So, of course, your second home his inevitably not- has to be, I presume. Right. And, and interestingly, Esperanza, in, in, on an off-season weekend in 1996, John White flew to Houston to visit the Petrillo. So you, again, you could see the relationship here. There was a real relationship between these mm. two families. And the article is saying, really? How could he not come to think that the Petrillos would want this size house? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, my thinking would go to, well, if they stayed at this 650 square foot little model house for so, you know, several years or, uh, you know, however long a time and were content there, one would think that they would, you know, when in Rome, you know, you you kind of go, go that way, like, oh, okay, well, they're probably satisfied with something relatively modest that that just echoes that feeling of just being right there next to the ocean. And exactly, exactly. And and look, I'm sure that, again, when you're sometimes to your point living, if you're living in 18,000 square feet, and all of a sudden, you're living in this gorgeous cottage tucked into a dune, it's it's like an alternative kind of vibe. And exactly. um, Yeah, it's a little shifting of gears that you might be looking for. And while they were still renting Mr. and Mrs. Petrillo, the model in the summer of 97, the article points out the subdivision process was grinding along slowly. But meanwhile, and here's a key element to bring in Esperanza, Mr. Petrillo was getting, as the article quotes, seriously rich Uh, and wanted to take on a bit of flash. Um, And when he spoke of the house he wanted to build, suddenly the word grander came into play. Mm. And so the sort of the story is getting told. And then all the things came out in this article, how he had a, a, an argument with the builder in his house in Houston, which he was renovating. And this was a high end builder in Houston who built houses for former President George H.W. Uh, Bush, Michael Dell of Dell Computers. 
And, you know, this builder just said, talking about Mr. Petrillo, he's mean, self-centered. And again, this, these are his words, not ours. And on top of everything, he wants to hurt you. And this is the part of the article, but I remember me reading it 11 years ago, I started to, I started to get upset, you know, mm. just thinking, because again, I knew where this was going. Now, in response, David Berg, who I guess is one of the lawyers for Mr. Petrillo, said in a formal tone, uh, our review has shown that the Petrillos are honorable people who abide by their commitments. So again, he said, she said, who knows the real story here, but... Anyway, by the summer of 99, Esperanza, the whites understood that the Petrillos wanted to build a big house. And at this point, John White was asking him about it. Petrillo replied the house would be 14 to 16,000 square feet. Very remote that the house would exceed 20,000 square feet. Remember, on the corner well, of the property where 650 square feet was. Well, and I think, I mean, to that point, I believe, and I think that was probably the code even back at this point, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think you can build anything more than 20,000 square feet in Southampton. Yeah. I, and Sagaponic was still part of Southampton. Exactly. That's, that's, that's correct. This To Esperanza's point, this is before the incorporation of Sagaponic. So that is definitely the case. But at this point, the whites were sort of afraid in a sense. They didn't want to provoke Mr. Petrillo. And Mike Burroughs, now remember, Mike Burroughs, who was, was the, the friend, friend, the original friend, right? The best friend. Brought them, basically brought them out. The here, co-worker, yeah. the guy who's on this property since the 70s. Now, this is a quote from Mike, Burrow, uh, Mike Burrows. And he said this in a court deposition. Tony had changed. He became very aggressive. And it became clear to me he was not going to do what he promised. Hmm. And now this is coming from his best friend, the guy who brought him here. And... Now, Burroughs did admit that Petrillo, there was cause to be irked, in a sense, from Mr. Petrillo. The subdivision was not finished. And at the White's request, he had sent them three down payments of $635,000, yet his piece of the land was still out of reach. Right. But a subdivision is not, you know, the process of a subdivision is not the White's fault. So. Correct. Correct. It was not. That's, that's also true. But again, apparently, the White's asked him. Uh, for more right, money. For and money. Now, Marilee Foster, now this is another Sagaponic farming family, mentions how the whites were sitting on that land that was more valuable than anyone's, but and then we've spoke about this before. They didn't act like it. They were lower middle class to all appearances, broken down pickup trucks, etc. But this is Marilee talking. Their eye was on something greater than financial reward. And again, I think they were trying to avoid future issues, really. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that seems the bottom line for them. Exactly. And exactly. what happened was greater issues in the present. <laughs> that's right. And this is really, we see where this is we're starting to head. Even Marilee Foster said something to the effect of, I guess, a handshake doesn't mean anything anymore. Like something I you, said, yeah. you inferred earlier mm -hmm. during this, during this podcast. And, um, and, you know, again, knowing Mr. White, and it says it in this article, how he was a man of few words. He used to sit at the post office with Merrill Hildreth, whose family had owned the SAG store, which was also um, which was also the post office. And they would mm -hmm. sit on the front porch together 
and it was pretty quiet because neither of them spoke very much. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was it was it was that kind it was that kind of conversation. You, you, you could just picture these two old men of few words, men of few words sitting sitting there. Just their way of conversation was no real conversation at all. And you know, they're talking about the reputation of John White. How just to give you a little background, we spoke a little bit about the Petrillos. He had a white of a, a reputation of being thrifty to a, to a fault, rather than by a a gravestone for he and his wife, you know, they, they used the backside of his parents' stone in the, in the, <laughs> oh, in that's, stone. that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's Scottish frugality. That really <laughs> is Scottish and very good. They were Scottish to say that it really was Scottish frugality. And, you know, and yet the whites were setting aside for conservation, more land in Sagaponic than anyone else, mm-hmm. um, you know, 90 acres and all. And it says selling the land to developers would have made them rich, but they took a fraction of that value to keep the farm, the, 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 those fields open. And there was a quote here by somebody who said, they're like characters out of Willa Cather. And moving on, now the subdivision was approved and filed in mid 2000 and the deal would be getting, was getting close. And he, Mr. Petrillo would be getting nine and a half acres in these three lots. But again, this is something we touched on. Something dramatic had happened since that long ago porch meeting. The farm was now appraised at $32 million. Oh, dear. Okay. So what was that original price? $6 million, was it? You know, and they, he paid $2 million for the property and now right. it was appraised at 32 That's what happened. It just skyrocketed at this point. The like you million, said, post-2000, right? Yeah. Right. Right. And, and John White wrote to Petrillo now that this, that this 2 million wasn't even going to cover their, their estate taxes, which in the sense is sort of not Mr. Petrillo's problem. I mean, he bought the land when he bought the land and uh, he or made no the one, deal when he made the deal. Right. Yeah, and no one yeah. knew, no, if, if had anyone known this appreciation was going to happen, the whites wouldn't have sold. None of this would have ever happened. It was, um, it was a, it was to his good fortune, the Petrillos, nothing else. But it was now appraised at $32 million. And John White wrote he needs an extra 6 to $8 million for his lots. And Mr. Petrillo declined. And why wouldn't he decline? Yeah, of course. Now, you, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I, it's, it's a really like, a rock and a hard place. Talk about a rock and a hard place. But I don't know. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. It's just, again, it's, it's all part and parcel of what makes this story. I'm getting flustered just I, I, it's, it's, talking if, to you. If we're getting flustered, I mean, you could imagine the white sons, they probably still aren't sleeping well. Mm-hmm. And what can you say? It's it, it, he, Mr. Petrillo's timing was good. Mr. White's wasn't. That's what it really ultimately came down to. And meanwhile, the Whites canceled the first closing in late 2000. Uh, they felt Mr. Petrillo lied about the house size. They also said he promised, you know, to donate development rights, sell the land back to the Whites at agricultural prices, which would be a buffer for him and a farmland for the Whites. And this too, Mr. Petrillo said, couldn't be put on paper and wasn't on paper. Yeah, clearly, I mean, the Whites, from what I am, you know, hearing is they they were they you know they're really conservationists these are people that are tied to their land in a in a way that obviously after so many centuries you know you would be um 
And, but, but really that's, that's the big point. They think of like, you know, Peconic land trust and what right. they've done throughout here, because this is one of those situations where they were trying to be conservative conservators. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And again, it's, this is, this is the part of the story where not to be redundant, but it was timing. And yeah. meanwhile, at this point, Petrillo said he's going to bury John White under, this is where it starts to get painful. He's going to bury John White under legal bills. Look, this guy is a savvy, you know, was a very savvy, well-educated Wall Street lawyer, um, New York lawyer. And while John White was certainly not a hayseed, um, he was probably overmatched here. And, you know, and that's, and meanwhile, 10 years later, the filings from this litigation could fill a room. So, a year ago this month, which was we're talking about, um, I guess, back in the day when this was going down, they were forced to close on the sale, nine and a half acres to Mr. Petrillo for two point one million less the down payments. They sold development rights to their beachfront land, all except the Petrillo slice for 14 million dollars to the town of Southampton, mm-hmm. which by early 2007 had the money in its preservation fund to swing that kind of deal. Which it was fourteen million. Huh? I mean, 14 that's, million. right now yeah. and again. Now the whites. Unfortunately, that did happen. Right. That was so. That was two thousand seven, and the whites could have gotten twice. And this is to your point that you just made. The whites could have gotten twice that much if they would have sold it off, you know, to mansion builders. But that land will remain open in perpetuity. A lovely view for all, including the Petrillos, mm-hmm. uh, who are on that the smaller section of that property, and sadly. Now, again, we're going back, whatever, 10 years when this is or longer um, when this was all going down. Most of that 14 million, 2007, so it's 15 years. Most of that 14 million dollars is gone, spent in large part battling with uh, Mr. Petrillo in court. Um, yeah, Esperanza is just like we're both our shaking hands. our we're heads. Just, <laughs> yeah, we're shaking our hands. It, it's it, it's so pain. it's. Esperanza, we've probably lost 90% of the listenership here listening to this story. Because, yeah, because well, but it's just, it's, you know, these are the stories said. that have to be told. Yeah, are, yeah. And exactly. obviously we thank you know, Vanity Fair for having told the story. And there are several other articles about this. And, but it just, I think it is a story that is not so well known about the white family and, and needs to be worth, it's worth repeating because this is happening with them. It also happens in other places. That's correct. And remember there's, there's, these farming families are so far and few between. Um, that's sort of where we are. So meanwhile, Mr. Petrillo at this point is still filing more legal claims, you know, money, inconvenience that the whites have cost him, delays, um, all sorts of things like this. Um, he wants the whites also to pay, wanted the whites also to pay his 10 years worth of attorney fees, which were came to over $4 million. Hmm. And remember, again, that six million dollar field went up six, you know, five to six times in value when this whole thing was right, going on. Right. And I, I mean, I just think he's the one that created his attorney fees. So, yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, now, now moving it along here in this incredibly painful story, um, the 24 acres of beachfront for which the white sold the development uh, rights to uh, 95% of that can get can, can get put into a family trust. 
for the roughly $3 million that they value that they set on it. And as for the main house, Petrillo notes, it was put into an early trust without an, an, an ascribed value. So the storyline is Mr. Petrillo acquired a nearly 10 acre parcel of oceanfront land for a 10th of its current market price at the time. And is this is Vanity Fair talking, is, they, is that not enough? That's, that's one of those rhetorical questions, is that not enough? 10 acres for a 10th of the current market value at the time. But of course, David Berg said, why should they be allowed to walk away scot-free when they've created all these problems? Again, the he said, she said, right. it, was the, it was the whites that were creating the problem for the Petrillos. Why should they be able to walk away when they've created all of this trouble? Now, to start quoting some of the local residents here, Esperanza, Tinka Topping, now this is another family that the Toppings have been out here forever. Whatever mistakes the whites may have made with this guy, I don't know, says Tinka Topping, who married into a farm family like the whites that goes back to the 1600s. But someone who comes in to grab some beach footage for summer use is a travesty if it interferes with land that belongs to farmers and preserving whatever vestige of the farming community this village still has. It's infuriating to those of us who do care. And maybe a more calm approach to by said by Peter, the late Peter Matheson. It appears Mr. Petrillo made a very good deal on the land exchange and one has to wonder why he would pursue, pursue all these other claims under these circumstances. Yeah, well, like like you just said, when is is that is that not enough? When is enough enough? And I, I always think, ask that question. And I think that's really, I think that's really that's the big, that's an excellent. See, even on somber, downcast <laughs> episodes, we get a little bit of a an Esperanza Leon segue. So thank you for that, Esperanza. But it is true, and I I, I think Peter Matheson's play part because I. I I think it's almost a good place to start wrapping up. Um, yes. When is enough enough? Um, there's a sense of place here of what this community once was. He already got what, you know, we called Ira Rennert's 63 acres for $11 million at the of the century. This is a 10th of the market value when he paid for it at that time. Um, honestly, can you just say, can one just say, you know what? I was my the, my timing was good. Let's just shake hands and all be friends, and let's move on. But apparently, you know that's not what happened here. Did you hear that sigh? Yes, I was, did. You heard and, that. And sigh? in all of this, I mean, by 2018, uh, Mr. White is gone, right? Yes. So Correct. he he dies, and and where does this leave the White family? Now, I'm honestly not sure. You know, I was reading, you know, the last thing I read about this was in an East Hampton Star article of 2018 that is saying that they were forced to sell the father's farmhouse, the three acre farmhouse on Sag Main Street, uh, because of this. Um, now, Esperanza, you had mentioned you thought the whites or some other family is still in Sagaponic, but so I, I, I have found in 2019 that um, the white family was able to take back the ownership of the of the homestead. 
Um, so I, I know that that is uh, an article that I read on uh, 27east.com. Right. And, uh, but, you know, it, nothing comes easily. <laughs> so No, no. And, and, you know, this, that asking price, you know, the current asking price for that land, which was now we're going to, we're in 2018, it's probably, you know, then it was asking via C, uh, Sotheby's Realty, $9.6 million um, for that 2.8 acres. You know, that's four years ago. God only knows what it's, what it was. For the farmhouse, you mean? For the farmhouse. Yeah. So that, uh, so the farmhouse, apparently the whites were able to take back title on it, um, but they gave up the 24 acre parcel that includes a swath of the, and I'm quoting from the article in 27 East, uh, that includes the open farmland and five small cottages nestled in the oceanfront dune. So not just that little corner that he originally purchased, which you know, was the whole right. contention, but then they just end up owning really. So, the whole so, so they, the because now there were development rights swapped. Am I oh, so in other words, um, Mr. Petrillo now owns the development rights of that portion of the land. In other words, well, no, there are development rights on the beachfront, but I guess the from what I'm, I understand here, then the 24 acre parcel, which is farmland, right, um, is is what he owns, and those little cottages are on there. And uh, wow, so I, I guess they had to sacrifice all of that just to retain their family home. Yes, yeah, it okay. appears so to be the case. That seems to be the case. So that's, and again, now it should be noted that all of these lawsuits, you know, virtually every single one was in favor, was in favor, was in favor of the Petrillo. So on paper, legally, they were completely in their bounds. And again, to really close this chapter, it was probably more mostly a sense of timing, poor timing on the White's part, great timing on the Petrillo's part. And legally, everything he did was above board. But irregardless, and I'm going to leave it here, Esperanza, a very sad story. It is even, yeah, even with the close, you know, the final, you know, recovery of the of the uh, homestead, it, it's just it's a tragedy. You know, I think um, I think the next episode we're going to maybe talk about circuses that visited the eastern end of Long Island. Oh no, or, no, 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 that might be contentious. Let's not. Yeah, or, or 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 some sort of uh, really feel good kind of moment because yeah. um, I don't know if I could do another one of these, but I'm well, glad. But I'm glad. I'm we glad did we it. did because I'm this really is a topic that we've discussed sort of here and there in most of our most of our conversations, and I think that this really kind of encapsulates it. Like it's just like the feature of something so so uh, dramatic that happened with a, a local farming family, and and you know that sense of place that we always talk about was truly sacrificed here. Exactly right. I think that's I think that's true. And again, it's really it really is metaphorically, you know, a story. It's a story of Eastern Long Island and the changes of Eastern Long Island, not mm. only of, over the past 25 years, but go back 50 years, go back, whatever, uh, just how this area. Is well, changed. go back 300, 400 uh, or, years, or, really, uh, if you yeah, go that's back also, to that's, the native that, population. Back, back to the, that, that's frankly. also true. But, but I yeah. guess. I guess the more things, I, I guess the only constant is change. And Esperanza, right. on that note, thank you for this dialogue. Thank you, Erwin. Until, Until next, next time. time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for joining us. New episodes of Our Hamptons are released every other Tuesday. Find them wherever you get your podcasts.